This is Intertractional, an exploration of Star Trek through an intersectional feminist lens. Star Trek is both a reflection of our society and an aspiration for our future. The stories it tells shape our world. Intersectionality explores intersecting forms of oppression and how they affect individuals with compound identities. Star Trek is for feminists. Okay, perfect. Hello, Ryan. Hello, Becca. Hello, Intertrekkies. So we're back, and this is going to come out a while from now, but today, December 17th, is the International Day to End Violence Against Sex Workers. Woohoo. And so it's very apt that we're going to be talking about sex work today. Oh my God, that explains what's been going on on my Instagram feed. Yes, <laughs> yes. I feel like people have been talking a lot about like the the metaphorical violence that Instagram has been doing to them by like shutting down parts of their feeds or shutting yeah. down sex workers' feeds or just shutting down people who are like, I follow a lot of people who are like sex worker adjacent, like drag performers mm-hmm. and stuff, and like they're being muted on Instagram, and that sucks. But I'm also like, why is everyone talking about this lately? That's mm-hmm. probably why. That's probably why. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's really relevant. And yeah, it's interesting that you frame it as like metaphorical violence or, or something, whatever you just said, because the like deplatforming I, yeah. of sex workers and sex educators and people who are sex positive, organizations that are sex positive is I mean it's it's definitely a type of it's definitely a type of violence. I just mean that you know like not physically bodies impacting each other. Yes. In the yes. the primary definition of violence that we usually use. Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. <laughs> just getting right into it. <laughs> so, how about before we get into the meat, you tell me what have you been watching lately? Yeah. Okay. So, I I just discovered the show called Future Man. Uh, which is on Hulu, which has apparently been out for a minute. Hmm. Like, it has three seasons up. And oh, it's wow. written by Seth Rogen and um, his writing partner, whose name I always forget. It, it's the same person who he wrote Pineapple Express. And oh, cool. um, they're they're not in it, but they're um, it's it's he's like the brain behind it. And it's very good. It's it's good if you like sci-fi. It's good if you like time travel sci-fi, which there is a lot of in Star Trek. Mm-hmm. So if you like those episodes, it's kind of uh, it's just like what if people who were kind of idiots tried to save the world with time travel sci-fi and also <laughs> also met someone who'd like seen Terminator and Back to the Future and was constantly referencing them. Mm. And so if you enjoy that kind of thing and you're kind of geeky, I, th- I think you'll like it. There is some some potty humor. Um, it's also uh, LGBT friendly and like sex hmm. positive. Cool. So I, it's real. It's really fun. Yeah. Nice. I'll have to check that out. Three seasons already in the bank. So Future Man, what about you? What have you been watching? Um well, besides Discovery and mm. continuing to do my Voyager rewatch, I am very recently, like literally yesterday, I saw two episodes of Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist, oh. which is a tearjerker. I had no idea. Uh, and it's 
set in like modern day San Francisco techie like culture and has a lot of uh, overtones of one of my favorite all time TV shows, which is called Wonderfalls. Hmm. Um, in that, like, it follows a girl who has kind of a crazy incident happen to her and then gets sort of mystical powers somehow oh. that help her, like, see into the emotions of other people. And I think they're kind of received as messages. <laughs> There's Greta again. Greta, <laughs> this is not the time. <laughs> girl. <laughs> uh, she kind of sees them as, like, messages from the universe that she's meant to take an action out of and so it's uh yeah i like it for that reason um but i haven't watched very much of it so i couldn't like tell you more than that yeah yeah all right so today Uh uh-huh risa risa this is what we're talking about and um we watched three episodes that People actually, like, basically all of the action happens on Ryza. Ryza is also referenced a lot in, like, just kind of casual conversation throughout Trek. Wait, so just in case someone hasn't caught up on this in a while, what exactly is Ryza? Yeah, so Ryza is a planet that is in the Federation, and it's kind of like the pleasure planet or like the vacation planet or Mm -hmm. like maybe space Hawaii (laughs) (laughs) for sure yeah and the culture like their motto in the culture is all that is ours is yours Mm -hmm. Um, so they're very open and like share and uh, there's a lot of both undertones and overtones of sexuality yes. and like sexual freedom. Yeah. I just, I d- yeah, I love it. I love <laughs> it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's usually a fun time when Ryza shows up um, or when, even when characters mention Ryza, it's like usually like a little wink to the fact that our characters like to have fun. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, but yeah, I just wanted to clarify that in case you haven't thought about this in a while, that it's a planet before we dive into our, uh, (laughs) before we dive into our summaries. I love that. I appreciate that. I'm just going to do a disclaimer here. My parents' house, which is where I am at, is like under renovation right now. So there may be some times when there's saw or hammering noises in the background. I apologize for that. It's real life. Yeah. It's okay, Becca. We we understand. We're all stuck at home right now. Yeah. All right. So we'll start out with like summaries of three episodes that we watched. We watched uh, Enterprise. Two Days, Two Nights, season one, episode 24. They filmed it in 2002. And you could tell it's 2002 because there are women in it who have applied glitter just directly to their face skin (laughs) not on their eyes not glittery eyeshadow just glitter directly to their whole face and this is considered a makeup look and (laughs) yes it took me back so much i was like oh my gosh i remember being a teenager and just thinking that this was the height of fashion to just apply 
a roll stick of glitter directly to my face. Yeah. It's called Two Days and Two Nights, basically because half of the crew of the ship is getting two days and two nights of vacation. And the other half is staying on the ship to man the ship. Hoshi, Archer, the captain, and Trip and Malcolm all go down to the planet, and presumably other people too, but they're all in a shuttle and they're the only characters we know who have names. All go down mm-hmm. to the planet together. We learned some interesting things about Risa that we didn't really know from the canon before, which is just that there's other stuff to do there besides hook up with people. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like uh, there are steam pools, uh, there's a, cl- a rock climbing face that. like the rock is constantly changing so it's like very difficult to climb yeah people apparently hang out in cafes all day like it's paris (laughs) Mm -hmm. there are other things for the other characters to do trip and malcolm decide that they're gonna go cruising at bars to Mm -hmm. uh enjoy quote like the local cultural flavor of the the of Risa, mm-hmm. which is to say that they are going to try to get laid. <laughs> yep. It seems like their co-workers are not exactly approving of this and kind of like rolling their eyes when they hear about these plans. We see them in a bar getting uh, tiki drinks and um, talking about women in a kind of sexist way, in a kind of transphobic way. Mm-hmm. They are picked up by some women who then turn into aliens of a different species who are also male, who also rob them. Um, In the meantime, uh, Captain Archer kind of has a fling with his lady neighbor at his hotel. Yep. And Hoshi meets a handsome stranger who she gets to practice languages with. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hoshi hooks up with handsome stranger, has a lovely trip. Nothing bad happens. Um, Archer's date turns out to be like pumping him for for intel about the Sulaban. And when he figures it out, she knocks him unconscious for some reason. And uh, Trip and... Malcolm eventually extricate themselves from the situation they found themselves in, which was like waking up 12 hours later, tied up without their clothes. Yeah. And uh, (laughs) no one on the ship is the wiser. They all go back to the ship together. And that's it. Um, Some stuff happens on the ship, too, but uh, it's not relevant to our discussion. So I left it out. Oh, yeah. And then Archer's almost good friend. Archer's almost girlfriend also has a dog. And his dog and her dog kind of like each other. So there's also dog romance on Risa. (laughs) Next, we have uh, the Next Generation episode 19 of season three, which is called Captain's Holiday. And in this episode, Picard takes a vacation despite not actually wanting to and um, meets Vosh, who probably many of you know who that is because she kind of looms large in the canon of romantic interests of Picard. Uh, But she's she's basically like 24th century Indiana Jones uh, or Tomb Raider, um, Lara Croft. And she's like up to a scheme to 
retrieve this artifact called the Toxutat. The Toxutat is a an extremely powerful, like gem-like object that has I don't know the the force of like a neutron star or something. I don't remember exactly. It is also an object or an artifact that has been lost in the past, but it's from the future. It's like from the 27th century. And there's these aliens who are coming back in time who have just like the best costumes, by the way. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) They are seeking Captain Picard because history has written that Picard is the person who's going to find the Taksu Tat and they want him to like find it for him and give it to them. So there's an archaeological dig. There's like some Ferengi shenanigans that happen. And there's 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 some boning. (laughs) Ryan was just like signaling, (laughs) don't forget that they have sex. (laughs) It's very important. (laughs) I like your hand signal there. I'll leave that to the listener's imagination to figure out what she was doing with her hands. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, Picard gets some. He gets to have an adventure. There's, like, time travel stuff happening. Um, and the episode is bookended on the Enterprise with, um, Riker and Troy and Crusher at the beginning, like all scheming together to get Picard to go on this vacation. And then at the end, like being like, oh, did you have a good time? And he's like, "Mm -hmm." (laughs) (laughs) mm-hmm. I I love that part. Um, so it's. It's a, definitely a standout episode, TNG-wise. I think it's great to get Picard off of the Enterprise and, like, away from the crew because he's just, you know, he's an interesting character. But when he's being captain, he's very right and proper. And then, like, with Vosh, he gets to be sort of looser. And there's just one random moment that I have to call out because it's so weird. He, at one point, like, wrestles a gun away from the Ferengi <laughs> and then throws it in the bushes. And then it's we never, nothing ever happens after that with that gun. I can't get over it. It's so bad. Such bad <laughs> writing and stage direction. He's just like, I don't need a gun. And also, if I throw it here, the Frankie's not going to pick it up. Somebody's going to find that gun in the bushes. I don't. I just, it just like blows my mind that this happens and it goes by super fast. I definitely didn't pick it up any of the other times that I watched this episode. But in this episode, it just struck me as just being like so strange. Um, doesn't really have anything to do with the culture of Riza or anything else that we're going to talk about today, but it's just like, go what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's Captain's Holiday. And then we watched a Deep Space Nine episode. Yes. So we watched Deep Space Nine season five, episode seven. He who is without sin, um, which was from 1996. And I'm only noting, I'm noting the year just because I know we're going to end up talking about the costumes at some point. And so it's mm. interesting to to note uh, when the- Do you co- know the year of the TNG episode? 1990. Ah, okay. So it's just, it's interesting to note like how 
the year it was filmed influences how people dress on Risa. Ooh, this is interesting. 1990, 1996, and 2002. Uh-huh. Exactly six years between each of these. Oh, huh. They're like, it's about time. So uh, Jadzia Dax is dating Lieutenant Worf, who might be Commander Worf now. Their relationship's kind of new. They decide to go to Risa to have some time alone. Um, it seems like she wants to get him to loosen up and have fun. And he wants to discuss whether or not they're exclusive or how she should behave as his partner. So they have very different goals for this vacation, um, which comes up repeatedly, but it's sort of framed in the beginning. Um, the, the doctor, Julian Bashir and Lita, the Dabo girl who are also dating, uh, decide to come along because they want to share a shuttle and they also want to have a vacation. And somehow Quark comes along too. I think because that's the only way Lita could get time off of work was if her boss also came on the trip. Worf is not happy about this. Um, They get to Ryza. Dax meets one of her old lovers who's played by Vanessa Williams, who was her lover with with Curzon. her former, with Curzon Dax, her former Trill Symbiont's host. So when yes. she was a dude in a different body, we learned that uh, Curzon actually died um, from hooking up with whatever this character's name is, with Vanessa Williams. Yeah, her her name is Arandis, or her character's Arandis. name is Arandis. Yeah. And he died specifically during Jamaharon. Yes. Uh, which, Becca, do you want to tell us what Jamaharon is? Do we know? Well, who knows what Jamaharon is? Um, but Jamaharon is this activity, mysterious activity that's referenced often in relationship to Ryza because I believe it's like a Ryzen ritual that... Very, it's like very heavily suggested that it involves sex of some kind, probably sex with multiple people or like group sex, not just with two people. Yeah. So it seems like it's either a sexual ritual or a sex act or both. And so death by Jamaharon is like saying that this person died while having sex. Yes. Worf is immediately jealous of their friendship. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they're reconnecting. Uh, we also get the idea that Arandis uh, works there and has gotten some sort of promotion from working for Ryza or for the Ryzen government or for this particular Ryzen uh, resort that they're at. Uh, Lita and Bashir break up and... This was a plan that was part of their trip. They have like a conscious uncoupling and celebrate it with a ceremony. Um, And somehow, I never know how to explain this part. Uh, Worf acts out his jealousy and protectiveness and his insecurities in his relationship with Dax by joining a local like conservative group that has been protesting and helping them become a terrorist cell by <laughs> taking down the the weather system that makes all the weather on Risa really nice. Mm-hmm. He and Dax have a fight about this. There are no legal repercussions for his behavior. He then decides to not help out these guys 
they continue to escalate their behavior and uh, eventually are like disarmed and the, the good weather is restored. Worf and Jadzia have a big talk about their feelings and his childhood and somehow they don't break up and then everyone goes somehow. back to Deep Space Nine. Mm-hmm. Perfect. So th- those are the episodes that we watched. Um, Riza, like I said, pops up in other episodes. There's a couple like... Um, I think the game, another mm-hmm. TNG episode, is a popular one where it's the opening scene is on Ryza. Uh, Will Riker gets this like headset that's called the game that's kind of like a drug, and then everybody on the ship gets addicted to it. Um, there's other casual mentions of Ryza kind of throughout the, especially the '90s era treks. What I really wanted to talk about in the context of Riza is sex work and like how this is one, I think, one of the closest to like within the Trek universe to portraying sex work. Mm-hmm. And it's it's not overt, like nobody ever says, like, I am going to go pay for sex, but they are they like heavily hint at it. So when Riker is trying to convince Picard to take his vacation on Riza, he's like repeatedly says Have I mentioned how imaginative the Ricean women are, sir? Too often, Commander. He's just extolling their virtues, but it's it's in a way that feels objectifying and like sexualized. Mm-hmm. But it's also pointing to the fact that engaging in sex is a good way to Relax. Yes. I am, uh, some of you, I think some of you know that I am on the board of the San Francisco Sex Positive Democratic Club. And our, like, the groups that we advocate for include sex workers as well as kinky, non-monogamous, and queer folks. Um, And I care pretty deeply about, ultimately, the decriminalization of sex work because it's, well, number one, it's work. Number two, it's like a, a way that women often are able to achieve ec- economic independence. Um, and the stigma that is placed onto sex workers is, I think, one, well, it's definitely one that has like very misogynistic undertones. Mm-hmm. Well, there's all kinds of tropes about like all women are whores or whatever um, to some degree and like all sex is transactional, which I don't ascribe to that. But I do think that a society that stigmatizes and punishes and like rains violence upon people who do sex work is one that is that's an expression of the misogyny within the culture. Mm-hmm. So where am I going with this? I mean, I think it's definitely apparent in these episodes whether or not the Ryzen women who we see are sex workers, which is sort of like it's unclear how commerce works in the Federation. We know that Earth is kind of socialist Mm-hmm. And we know that the Federation has some socialist and some capitalist planets, but that there's like a lot of socialism going around. Um, and so it's it's kind of unclear 
but the arguably arguably the women who we see or and some of the men who we see seem like they are both Ryzen and part of the employee system of mm-hmm. um these resorts that Federation uh Starfleet officers are visiting. Mm-hmm. Um, like Lita seems to have a sexual connection with someone who's also giving her a massage. Yes. Um, like the woman who approaches Picard seems like she was carrying a drink or like she was like just hanging out by the pool. She's walking around in a way that makes it seem like she works there. And yes. she might not work there. Like even if they don't work there, it's still uh <sighs> The way that sex as a whole is treated, it has to do with the way sex workers are viewed. So I feel like mm-hmm. it's relevant either way. So yeah. as opposed to this utopian place, Riza, uh, what's going on here on Earth today, Becca? Yeah, so what's going on here on Earth today is that, well, today specifically, the the International Day to End Violence Against Sex Work was first, um, I don't know, declared in 2003 as a way to recognize the uh, the sex workers who were murdered by the Green River Killer, a famous serial killer in Washington state. And since then has, you know, grown into a movement that is pushing to get the the fact that sex workers are at very high risk of violence more broadly known as a way to advocate for um, what I was talking about before, decriminalization, or at at minimum, like, destigmatizing and recognizing this as work um, because they are, like, being stigmatized leads to being at risk of violence. Um, And I have a couple statistics to quote to you. Um, Recent data suggests that between 17 and 34 percent of workers have reported being harassed, threatened, or assaulted by police in the United States. So part of how sex work being criminalized is like, you know, dangerous to sex workers is that police take advantage of this. And um, people who are who are doing sex work are very vulnerable to quote, intervention by police, which often leads to them being put into to violent or like violence being done to them. Also, studies have shown that female sex workers are frequent victims of sexual assault and physical violence, but are also 18 times, I'm going to say that again, 18 times more likely to be murdered than other women of their age and race. And it's just that's just devastating. That is not an okay thing. It doesn't mm-hmm. matter what you're doing with your body and with your time. You should not be 18 times more likely to be murdered. Mm-mm. So it's a real problem. And the way the way that Trek looks at people who are doing this to me is very interesting because Riza, uh, Riza is a culture that that kind of is really like open about this and regardless of whether they're like engaging in what we today would consider sex work that's like totally tied up into capitalism they are 
engaging in short-term sexual interactions with people who come and go. Mm-hmm. And they're doing it in a way that is wholly accepted and embraced inside their culture. So there's no stigma attached to it. And the people who visit Riza like know that that's what they're getting in for. They're go- that's what they're going there for. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's embraced and accepted and like encouraged that people go here for vacation. Um, so I like looking at this as like a future to live into to be like, let's make this culture that we live in today closer to the culture of Riza. And I think that we would reduce violence against women. I I think it's interesting how these three episodes sort of fulfill that utopian vision to different extent Mm. Um, and are are feminist in their portrayal of Risa to differing to largely differing degrees. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so something that I've read in my brief research about this is that um, when Risa was first conceived in the writer's room, it was supposed to be a little bit more LGBT friendly, mm. um, a little bit more uh, egalitarian in, um, you know, that it was men and women and everyone uh, who were equal opportunity objectification exactly exactly <laughs> that everyone went there for pleasure that everyone uh, could receive pleasure of all different kinds while they're there in terms of the the sexual aspect of the planet and uh, you know when we're looking at TNG we mostly see a heterosexual version of of Riza from a what what's the what's the word from the male gaze, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and then uh, we get to DS nine and we see this slightly more egalitarian, slightly more LGBT friendly uh, place, and then you get to Enterprise, which is the m- m- furthest in time. Uh, right. it's, it's the most recently filmed episode, right? Even uh-huh. though it's like chronologically the earliest in, in Trek. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just like the whole episode, like not even like Trip and Trip and Malcolm, but like not even just Trip and Malcolm. The whole episode is kind of moralizing about like what are the good activities to do on Risa versus like the activities that we see as kind of shady or shallow mm-hmm. or, you know, like Malcolm's going to go rock climbing and the captain's going to relax at a beach resort with his dog. Oh, I think it's uh, I think it's Mayweather who's going to go rock climbing. Who did I say? You said Malcolm. Oh, M name. Yeah. Mayweather. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sorry. The helmsman. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mayweather goes rock climbing. And Hoshi is going to converse with locals and make friends. But Trip and Malcolm, they want to get laid. They want to go cruising for sex. And it's not seen as like the way it's presented in TNG is like, ooh, Captain's Holiday. Like, Captain, go to this wonderful place to relax in a healthy way. It's seen as like these dudes are kind of shallow and are just trolling for the women and the women are objects. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, how do they behave once they're out there doing this shallow, uh, you know, thing of trying to get casual sex? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I think the the show is very judgmental on them for wanting that in the first place. And they themselves, the characters, are um, like their first scene in, in a Ryzen bar, they're like looking off camera and talking about the women that are in the bar. What about that one? <laughs> now I know you've been cooped up in a starship for too long. What's wrong with her? Nothing, I suppose. I just wouldn't know which eyes to look into. (laughs) Now, she's interesting. I don't think she's the right pronoun. But if you think it's worth the risk... I don't know. Maybe I should have brought my scanner with me. (laughs) Which is very transphobic. Yeah, it's obviously very transphobic. And a lot of people who are sex workers are trans. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, there's a lot of factors that go into why that's the case. You know, economic standing is a big is a big element of it. Um, But I think it's also that, like, people who seek to pay for sex often seek to pay for a kind of sex that they would not want. That they can't find otherwise. otherwise. Yeah. Or that is less socially acceptable at the time otherwise. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's a demand there. There's an economic demand there. Exactly. But this conversation is just very much like, oh, don't don't actually find a penis under there. (laughs) Then the the women that they pick up. So they end up like in, in interacting with two people that they believed to be Ryzen women who present as Ryzen women. Who are covered in glitter. Covered, covered in glitter. <laughs> just just wanted to <laughs> head to toe glitter. This is who I was talking about earlier. I was like, oh man, their makeup looks great. Wait, is that glitter on her nose? On her cheek? Yes. Whole you face. You have to imagine that they smell like the inside of a Victoria's Secret store. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They smell like rose and cherry blossom and like just just really sack like candy. Yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> They're like seducing uh, Trip and Malcolm, but Malcolm and Trip also think that they're seducing them, I guess, or whatever. And they invite them to go to see, quote, the underground gardens, which actually ends up being just like a cellar of some kind. It's where like a they... wine cellar. <laughs> Yeah, it's like a wine cellar. It looks like a very 2002 wine cellar. Like they just went (laughs) into someone's basement to like worked on the show. Yes. Yes, it's very real. The the women transform into aliens and read as male from then on. Mm -hmm. They rob Tripp and Malcolm, like you said before, um, and, who have like, no take valuables take because they're socialists. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. They're not carrying anything. They don't have money. So they're forced to take their clothes. They're like, maybe we could sell their clothes. All right. Yeah. It's super random. But it's also a like a treading of this trope that feet that's the idea that sex workers will do anything from steal your money to your jewelry to your kidneys. This is a a trope that's 
I, you know, if you, you start to look for it, you see it everywhere about sex workers. There's actually a clip that I'll put in here from Voyager from this totally random ass episode called Fury mm. uh, that is season six, episode 23. Uh, in this episode, like Kess comes back and goes back in time to try to prevent past Kess from leaving Voyager, I guess. Sort of, but like also destroys Voyager. In the... Anyway, it's a confusing, I would say, not very good episode. But there's a scene where um, Janeway and Chakotay are talking and Riza comes up in the conversation. Remember the old story? Man goes to Riza where he meets a beautiful woman who invites him for an evening of passion. He wakes up in the morning feeling wonderful until he discovers he's missing a kidney. Every cadet about to go on his first shore leave hears that cautionary tale. I'm just like so angry that they put that in the mouth of Janeway. Mm-hmm. I think it reinforces this idea that sex workers are disposable because if they're inherently criminal, then it's like more okay to rain violence upon them and and murder them. Yeah. So I'm super disappointed by that. And... I pulled one other clip from Discovery. Doesn't actually have anything to do with Riza, but in the last episode of the first season, Giorgio is like has just finished having sex with two sex workers, uh, um, one who presents as male and another who presents as female. So there's some like gender equality for you. They have this exchange. Did you enjoy yourself? Did you? I learned so many new things. We shouldn't charge you. But we have to charge you. We enjoyed this encounter, so we shouldn't be compensated for it. Right. Yeah. The, their their enjoyment is enough compensation, and they shouldn't get paid for the work that they did. Right. Which reinforces this idea that sex workers shouldn't enjoy the encounters that they're having with their clients. And if they do, then they shouldn't be paid for some reason, which is just fucking dumb. It's like people and people all over the world enjoy their jobs and get paid for it. Why should sex workers only do it if they don't like it? It drives me nuts. And, you know, and I think it's like another expression of misogyny where all women in some misogynistic viewpoints are not supposed to enjoy sex. Mm hmm. Or that sex is always inherently transactional. That it's something that a man enjoys and a woman gives in order to get something. Ugh. Yeah, it's really gross. The scene concludes. Perhaps if you teach me something new, it will be fair trade. Mm. Where is the shrine of Mola? going in a moment from this languorous pose to on top of one of them choking him and demanding information. It's right there, a demonstration of how easy people believe that it is to to be violent towards sex workers, uh, how kind of nonchalant she is about it. So I just like I wanted to bring that in there in, mm -hmm. in the commentary about sex work. Uh, so far, Discovery hasn't gone to Riza, but maybe it will someday. <laughs> One can only hope. Yes. Editor's note, 
Discovery went to Risa two days after we recorded this episode, <laughs> ironically, but they didn't party. So mm, did they really go? Um, can I, I kind of want to return just for a second to that awkward scene with Trip and Malcolm. Yeah. Um, you know, talking about the perceived gender or the perceived biological sex like assigned sex at birth mm-hmm. yeah um of these people who are presenting as female whether or not they are quote actually quote female right. um that it's even i think more complicated with like the history both in the show and behind the scenes of how malcolm's sexuality is portrayed mm. Right, because, like, what's his name? Malcolm Reed? Yeah, I know his last name. Malcolm Reed. <laughs> because I think his character, or at least the 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 fandom rumor, um, which has some confirmation from some of the writers, it's definitely on Memory Alpha about his character, is that he was originally supposed to be a gay man, oh. and that they chickened out of writing him that way, and that the actor is sometimes portraying him as gay. Huh. Um, which I think makes... I think his character makes sense as a closeted character. Like, mm-hmm. he's kind of secretive. He has a lot of talk and a lot of bravado around women, and then we never actually see him in a relationship with a woman. It's all very strange. And and I think one of the other takes on his character is that he was being played kind of as gay and that the producers didn't really like that Mm. and would then react by like writing him into these really really toxic masculinity kind of strong scenes where he would overtly reject that kind of situation Mm. or like overtly assert his sexual like his desire for women um, yeah, which is part- or his aversion to men. Yes, yeah. which is the habit of many closet cases. Yeah, like a lot of conservative politicians who spend all of their uh, political work like making it harder for LGBT people simply to exist, <laughs> and then you find are, out, like then exposed to be going to like gay bathhouses or gay undercover. During COVID, uh, male like sex parties, like I'll I'll put a link to where oh this was, this didn't happen in the United States, but yeah. it's like a crazy story. Yeah, and, and I'll 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 link to some of the stuff I've seen about Malcolm Reed's character. Or I'll send you that information, Becca, so that we can link to it. It's I I wish that the right like that we could assume that the writers were being clever enough to like write him as a closet case. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what's happening is like this sort of like writer producer tug of war where they're kind of writing him as gay and then they like overreact yeah. and it just becomes very problematic and it just feels like one of those scenes where they put in there where it's like either you can read it as like Trip is giving him a hard time because Trip suspects that he's gay which is like fucked up and homophobic mm. um, like like oh the, well the one that you're attracted to isn't really a woman or that, like, they, this is just another opportunity for them to assert their, like, toxic cis straightness. Right. Yeah. It takes on the, like, 
locker room talk kind of feel, which is a thing like that term. I, I hate that anyway, but it's this kind of like a way that males are shown to bond with each other is through the objectification of women mm-hmm. and through the kind of like uh, put putting down of their friends, like insulting yeah. their friends or making them like belittling them. And I know it's easy to pick on Enterprise, but then like on top of this, the fact that they want sexual pleasure at all is like punished by the plot, right? Yes. And that uh, the character who had no interest in sexual pleasure and like developed a real connection with a fellow uh, humanoid, Hoshi, she's rewarded with sex. Mm -hmm. And like that sex is seen as like okay and positive because it wasn't transactional. um, It came out of like a genuine bond. It wasn't casual. And this idea that casual sex is always dirty is just like all over this episode. Um, And I think even to a lesser extent on TNG, like we see Riker promoting Ryza for for that culture and for what it is. But then Captain Picard is just like, he's disgusted by these women who are offering him Jamaharon. Mm -hmm. And the woman who he's into is the one who's like, interesting and smart and like not from there and like combative and who he has to like work hard to get and it just Mm -hmm. shows this kind of like well he had sex on Ryza but like it's okay because like it wasn't he developed a real bond and um not that there's anything wrong with that either I'm not saying like I'm not privileging casual sex but like yeah the show is kind of trying to have it both ways and I think the only one that does a good job of, like, celebrating Ryza and, like, being kind of feminist and sex positive is, like, the DS9 episode. Oh, yeah. I love the. I think the DS9 episode portrays Ryza itself the best. And um, I really love that the um, – that we actually spend a decent amount of time in the episode interacting with somebody who is from Ryza, who's a resident of Ryza. Uh, Arandis, uh, because in the other episodes, like, except for that one woman that, like, tells Picard about Jamaharon, there's no actual Ryzen with whom we have a conversation, nor in the Enterprise episode. All of them, even the people who are supposedly Ryzen women, end up being aliens from a different place. Mm-hmm. And so Arandis is... Uh, I mean, she's Vanessa Williams. She's incredibly beautiful, but she's also very kind and uh, like playful and obviously good at her job because she recently got promoted. Um, And she is just kind of like hanging out with Dax because Dax is a friend of hers. Jadzia Dax used to be Curzon Dax and Curzon Dax died during Jamaha Roan while Arandis was participating in it. So they get to resolve this thing where Arandis has kind of been like, uh, maybe I killed somebody kind of. Uh, and Dax gets to tell her, oh, no, he was so happy about that, <laughs> which is weird. I mean, I kind of love the like trill uh, relationship with death, which is very different. Yes. Um. But I also love there's a scene where uh, they're like playing with clay together. It's very sensual in mm. this like ghost kind of way. 
And it is the most, like, the kind of the closest that we get to gay stuff. Yeah. I mean, like, Worf being jealous of the two of them, like, one is within the show portrayed as, like, kind of bad. It's like Worf is the one who has to learn a lesson about jealousy. So his yeah. jealousy is, like, it's a it's a bad quality. He should be sort of more open to his lover casually flirting with other people. But then mm-hmm. also it, it, it's sort of portrayed as innocent. Like, she's always just like, that's not a current thing. That that's Curzon's lover, or like that's my former lover, but she's never like, oh, but she's a woman and I'm a woman, and so why are you jealous? It's always like, no, there could be something there. So yeah, no, I really like that Jadzia never denies that like she couldn't be attracted to Arandus because of her gender. Right. She's just like, I mean, this is a thing that she repeats to Worf a number of times. Is like, you gotta trust me that I am capable of having relationships with people that I've had sex with in the past and been in relationship romantically in the past and like interact with them in a platonic friendly way that is not threatening or like intended to destabilize the relationship that I have with you Worf mm-hmm. um, and he just like he, he, well he basically does not accept that <laughs> I forget how they resolve it. Like, maybe he's like, okay, I guess I'll loosen up a little bit after he does terrorism. Um, (laughs) But, uh, yeah, I'm still left, like, flabbergasted at the fact that they're still together at the end of this episode. Yeah, yeah, he kind of, he's, like, trying to excuse his behavior like this wouldn't be acceptable for a Klingon woman. And she's like, well, I'm not a Klingon woman. You also don't really actually know that much about Klingon women, like... Mm-hmm. I know more about Klingon women than you do. Like, you weren't even raised <laughs> with Klingons. Like, what are you talking about? But also, mm-hmm. like, if you're going to be with me, you need to be with me, who, how I am. Yeah. Uh, which seems like he, I don't think he actually admits fault, but it seems like he comes around to that position. Yeah, I think that he does. And I also really like that she at no time is, like, acquiescent to him like being like okay well I guess I can change this behavior in this way to kind of try to appease you she's just like no this is who I am and if you can't deal with it then this isn't gonna work but she's also like really into him and she she says that he has like the heart of a poet or something which is very cute I love that whole scene that you just referred to where she says that he has a heart of the poet it's like um the other characters are questioning her, kind of giving voice to what a lot of the audience is thinking, which is like, why are you putting up with this shit? Like, why are you even uh-huh. with him? And she's like, well, I really like him. So she defends her attraction to him, which is nice. You also see people within the show calling out his jealousy as being problematic, which is good. It's not just on us to like see that. They're like, no, this is not how people should behave, mm-hmm. which is awesome. And then... uh Julian Bashir even mentions like, well, you're a complicated woman. Like, that's why I pursued you for so long. So now we see two characters who are in a platonic friendship acknowledge that there used to be like that he used to have feelings for her and that she rejected him and they're chill and they're friends now. Mm -hmm. And it's just like so much expression of healthy sexuality around Dax and around Riza in this episode. It's like so lovely and like Mm -hmm. healthy friendships and friendships that can like 
recover from one person having a crush on another. Also, relationships that can end in a healthy way. I love this uh, ritual that is apparently part of Bajoran culture where the end of the of a relationship is celebrated. And that's what like Bashir and Lita are there to do. They're there to break up uh, and they're doing it in this way that's like heartfelt and acknowledging that they care about each other as people, but like their romantic part of their relationship has ended. And I... I don't know. It just like charms me to my core, the existence of this ritual and this culture and being like, yeah, people don't have to hate each other in order to break up. They can just like accept that they're not right for each other and still be chill and still be like sweet to each other. Yeah. Yeah. And I think even if, you know, like I have some experience with that. I feel like even if in like my experience in real life is like it was messier than that, but like I was able to, like, maintain a friendship with one of my exes Mm -hmm. and, like, acknowledge that, like, we weren't great together and, like, still grateful for that relationship. Like, thank you, next. (laughs) Yeah. Ariana. Which is is definitely where Lita's head's at because she's like, actually, I want to go, like, jump on Rom, which is hilarious and I love that also. Uh, Rom's like the sleeper hit of DS9. Absolutely. Did, did we want to talk a little bit more about the costumes? Oh my god. Yes. I fucking love all of the Ryza costumes. <laughs> like, all of them. Um, in the TNG episode, it's like all about like really strappy bathing suits that have belly buttons showing and like transparent or translucent translucent little like cover-ups um and picard gets a fantastic like little speedo i know yeah we don't get any (laughs) rising men eye candy but we do get picard eye candy which yes i'm sure you guys have even if you can't remember this episode clearly like this image goes around as like a picard meme a lot just like him reading in his underwear on the beach it's so lovely it's (laughs) perfect he has i you know I think this episode is the episode that I spent the longest thinking about his um, package. Oh my gosh. Because <laughs> there's a scene where it kind of like pans up and it's just like, okay, well, that, that, there it is. Pans up from his feet. <laughs> anyway, uh, and then in, uh, in the DS9 episode, Dax has this unbelievable like bathing suit, bodysuit thing that's kind of uh, an animal print and also rainbow colored and metallic and like I cannot get over it. And she has a, a sarong that she wears it with that's like this also metallic kind of fabric. And uh, Aranda's has this beautiful like light blue bodysuit. There's a couple other Ryzen people who uh, go off with um with Quark who have this like kind of burnout velvet situation, navy blue bodysuits. Everybody's wearing bodysuits. Yeah. And I remember in 1996 or maybe 1997, but around that same time, I definitely had a one like I was in middle school. I had like a middle school but adult woman. Like I had a woman's body at that point. And I definitely had a one piece swimsuit 
and a sarong. And Ooh, like yeah. it felt very sexy in this. <laughs> like nice. I remember like wearing it on like a school trip where we got to go to a pool. And so it makes sense to me that they're not wearing bikinis. Like that was like very of that era in the 90s that like mm-hmm. w- like one piece swimsuits were coming back and were like kind of hot for a minute. For real. And then they kind of like went out of style again. And we see that in the uh, in the Enterprise episode where the two people who are like dressed like Ryzen's mm-hmm. are the fake Ryzen women and they're in bikinis with jewel tones, reds and greens and mm-hmm. I don't know what else. I am like less drawn to those costumes to be honest. The costumes weren't as great. The makeup was great. I mean the they're makeup, also mostly sitting in that scene so it's like really focused on like everyone's like upper body. Yes. But it's just like it's like thin eyebrows. <laughs> like yeah like yeah, bright, like, jewel tone, like, eyeshadow, and then, like, lots and lots of glitter. Just, like, lots and lots of glitter. <laughs> so much uh, glitter. Oh. <laughs> yeah, but um, obsessed, like, with Rise and Fashion in general. The the set design maybe a little bit problematic because, like I said before, it's kind of like Space Hawaii. Yes. Just the the tiki-ness of it is kind of an expression of settler colonialism where it's like oh we go to these island nations and take advantage of their hospitality and then like usurp their government or whatever and the the horgon this like totem thing that will Riker tells picard to get that like leads to this conversation about jamaharon is a very like tiki looking figure mm. that feels very much like an appropriation of a native culture you know it is what it is so yeah i'm really curious like if discovery which like discovery should go to risa just because like it would give su- a, a, such a great opportunity with like the two like gay male cast members that we have Ooh. and uh like the one non-binary cast member that we have to like have an experience on Ryza like that would be so fantastic but I would love to see how they design the costumes to reflect like 2020 or 2021 like swimsuit fashion yeah especially in the like the fact that we're so much farther in the future like they can do a lot with what whatever happened with Ryza. I'm like, yeah, I would love to see that. I hope Discovery chooses to do that. Oh, my gosh. I almost forgot to talk about the objectification of women and second wave feminism. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Bring it on. Which I feel like is kind of related to this costume discussion because we're here Definitely just being related like... related to what people are wearing. Yeah, because we're just here being like, oh, these sexy costumes are awesome. The women are obviously having fun wearing them. It's great. Um, there's definitely like, uh, like, so second wave feminism was kind of like the sixties through the eighties and was like really focused on, um, women's liberation. So like women being allowed to work, um, women having roles outside of the home and also sort of drawing attention to how women were treated either as sex objects or as domestic objects, Mm. um, it's not very inclusive racially. It's not very inclusive of people other than white cis women in terms of like wh- whose goals it was fighting for. Um, mm-hmm. It's also very important historically. So like 
not fully knocking second wave feminists, just kind of like knocking second wave feminist perspectives being brought into 2020 um, without mm. more intersectionalism or, or context. And then, right. I don't know, third wave is kind of like, it's a little murky, what's third wave and, and what's fourth wave and like what's intersectional. And that's sort of like an ongoing debate. Uh, but like the 90s was more girl power. So this more re-embracing of femininity and this idea that like you can wear lipstick, like you can wear sexy things and that's not necessarily disempowering you like women can celebrate their own sexuality and it doesn't necessarily mean that they are making themselves an object for the male gaze Mm -hmm. um but you can imagine how you could look at these episodes and be like risa is problematic because men are going to this planet to have sex with women and the women are seen as the commodity of the planet i think Mm. that's a very limited perspective Perspective on Riza. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that at times, especially, I think at times the narrative does play into that, especially in the Next Generation episode, mm-hmm. um, or plays into that as being like a way to look at sex. And like one of my issues with the second wave feminist perspective is that. It sort of aligns feminists with conservatives in Mm. this way that makes me really uncomfortable, um, where women who don't want to be objectified are agreeing with people who think that all sex is bad and that it's hard for them to be critical of... It's like if you are putting yourself at a place where you are being critical of women who are expressing their own sexuality versus being critical of the men who are objectifying them, Mm -hmm. you're still punishing other women or you're still punishing other people, female, non-binary, whatever, who are choosing to express their sexuality, which I think leads us back into FOSTA and SESTA. Yeah, no, it absolutely does. I'm like reminded of this conversation that I had a couple years ago with a woman who's a member of the temple that my parents are also members of. And I was, you know, am kind of I actually babysat this woman's children for a while. And at the time, she was on her way out of being part of an organization that was whose mission was to fight child sex trafficking. And she was like a big advocate of SESTA-FOSTA. So SESTA-FOSTA are a pair of bills that were passed a couple years ago federally that one of them stands for Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act. The other one stands for something that I can never fucking remember. They both make it possible to prosecute the owners of online platforms on which child trafficking takes place. So this changes a rule about kind of like how the internet works where people who create platforms are not liable for the content that its users produce and like up, you know, post on their platforms to making them like criminally liable if it is something that involves the the purchase 
buying and selling of children, which, you know, on that on its face, that sounds like a good thing, probably. But the outcome has been that these platforms are so afraid the you know the creators of these pa- platforms are so afraid of this criminal co- prosecution that they've made their terms of use very broad to restrict basically anything that looks like sex work soliciting clientele for sex uh, for paid sex um, and it also you know it expands out to impacting sexuality educators it impacts my organization the Sex Positive Democratic Club because we are like. Uh, invite limited on how many people we can invite to events and shit. It's like it just has sex in the name. And so we're throttled. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we talked a little bit about how this deplatforming is very harmful to sex workers. But to go into a little bit more detail, what happened is like in the era of the Internet prior to FOSTA-SESTA, People who are doing sex work were able to come together in community, um, communicate about problematic clients, and really, like, form a network of protection to to make their work safer. Yeah, and, like, like a client would – they would be able to ask a client about their identity. Yeah. They'd be able to get online payment. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically, they'd be able – yeah, and, and through their network, they'd be able to screen people so that they were – yeah, less likely to be subjected to to violence as opposed to standing on the street and like literally like waiting for someone to drive past you in your car. Yeah. Or or relying on an intermediary, let's say, like, you know, terms like pimp or whatever thrown around here, relying on that type of person to uh, get their clients in for them who often are very exploitative. Um, I don't think that relationship is necessarily exploitative. It just is often exploitative. And when when people have the ability to do this for themselves via the internet, they have more agency in their work. You said something that was really interesting. I want you to say here about violence against women. Oh, yeah. So I um, if you want to know more about FOSTA and SESTA and like the history of the people who were uh, like fighting for it and the people who it affected, um, I listened to this really great podcast um, episode of Reply All Um it's episode number 119 if you want to look it up, but you can uh, – we'll also link to it. Uh, but one of the things I learned in that episode is that um, because back pages of Craigslist like went up city by city allowing people to solicit sex work on the internet, they were able to study violence in those cities – individually and compare before and after and compare them to other cities and so basically um when sex work is accessible on the internet the murder rates of all women not just sex workers go down wow in a city so being able to get online uh, to facilitate your sex work not only makes you safer, but makes all the women in your city safer. Wow. There's some sort of crazy palliative effect to um, sex being commercialized and accessible and women being able to 
protect themselves, all sex workers being able to protect themselves like through those platforms, but also it makes everybody else safer too. Mm-hmm. Super crazy. I mean, I could spin up like all kinds of theories about why that's true, but I... Uh, yeah I mean there's like yeah there's lots of (laughs) theories on it it's like it's a correlation like we don't necessarily need to understand it to know that it's that it's true and that there's data behind it so there is a current bill that is working its way through congress right now that's called the earn it act that looks a lot like sesta fosta would kind of expand the reach of it and we well, I especially, but I think we as a podcast are staunchly against this bill happening. So I recommend going to EFF website. That's the Electronic Frontier Foundation that has some guidance about how to advocate against this bill happening. Uh, that's called the Earn It Act once again. So there's your action item for the day. <laughs> um, yeah. And like... Be kind to sex workers, and if you if you're interested in this, like there's probably a local organization that you could get involved with. Um, I really like in San Francisco the St. James Infirmary. They are a mm-hmm. independent healthcare provider that serves the sex work and trans communities in San Francisco, um, and they're doing really important work. Um, here again, I'll plug the San Francisco Sex Positive Democratic Club. If you want to become a member, go to sfspdc.org. Is there anything else we want to say about this, like, legislation? I mean, I think it's another example of, like, what we were just talking about, of, like, this second-wave feminist perspective that, like, any woman sexualizing herself is is bad and she inherently doesn't have agency to do Mm. so. And this conflation of sex workers with sex trafficked individuals is very problematic. Um, Yes. And I, and I think, yeah. And I think that comes back to, I think that comes back to Risa and like the way that like we look at it as sex positive feminist as like this good thing versus someone else who might look at it as a, a place where women are objectified. And yeah. like it's just so much more nuanced than that. And you have to like look at individual situations to figure out which one is going on. Mm. It's like not always just that sex is bad. And like when people just believe that sex is bad or that transactional sex. Yeah, that it, it leads to these like perverse outcomes and these perverse Mm. incentives where like people are in danger. Yeah. I think that's uh, like, I can, I can finish that story that I started about this woman in my temple. Um, So we were having this conversation. She was on her way out of this organization that was fighting sex trafficking or like child sex trafficking. And I was, uh, I think I had asked her if there were any sex workers who were like a part of crafting the, platform of this organization and she was like no and, and I'm on my way out anyway um, but it just became more and more obvious in the course of that conversation that it was it was sex I would say transactional sex itself that had the that was the problematic thing in her mind because we kind of ended that conversation when she said that well, just don't you know that all of these like tech guys are like going on in the afternoon to like solicit sex and like the, and the doing that in the evening and like it's just like 
it start it you know it starts to feel like they're not actually concerned so much about people who are being trafficked as they are about the existence of people who are selling sex. Mm-hmm. It's really problematic because if people are stigmatized for selling sex, then it makes it actually harder for people who are being trafficked to be to be able to get out of that life. Like you are kind of branded and this is this shows up all over the place like people who are teachers getting fired for having done cam work or whatever or um very recently there was this like article in the new york post that was like oh look at this emt who's also selling sexy photos on OnlyFans, and like isn't that gross and it's like well yeah like why aren't they paying her enough to live a life as an emt like good for her for getting a fucking second job I mean, she shouldn't have to have a second job, but if she does, like, why not do this? Selling selling sexy pictures on OnlyFans is, like, one of the, like, safest ways to do this, I think. OnlyFans is apparently doing very well during quarantine. I am not surprised. Especially as, like, Instagram and Facebook make it harder and harder for sex workers to be out in the open and, like, even use terminology like like sex work in their posts um that they they get uh shadow banned they get their accounts taken down they and, and they also experience a significant amount of harassment um from people even people who are specifically not doing sex work but are like doing body positivity and like often showing themselves in lingerie or whatever are receiving unsolicited dick pics or like masturbation videos or whatever Mm -hmm. that like come into their inbox and like that's not punished that should not be happening and yet it seems like instagram is like doesn't care that that harassment is happening but like really does care about the existence of sex workers on its platform and wants to make that stop happening and so it's just this like really backwards way of addressing this societal problem. Yeah, the person who cuts my hair, or the person who used to cut my hair before the pandemic, <laughs> um, she, she has, like, some drag and performance accounts on hmm. Instagram and Facebook that have been shut down, and she's also, like, banned from creating new accounts. Ugh. And she's put, she's ended up putting some of that content onto her hair account and is worried that her hair account will get shut down and then she'll have no way to promote her business Uh uh-huh and like she should not have to worry about that shit no they're not doing anything wrong they're earning a living in this fucking twisted capitalist society and we should let them do it because it reduces the like prevalence of murder against women. <laughs> yeah, and it shouldn't. I mean, it shouldn't need like I shouldn't need to have a benefit from it, like in order to support this. But like, right? But I do. But like, come on, you know, it shouldn't matter. Like any of those kind of side effects. Yeah, it shouldn't matter. But do. Yeah, I think that 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 <laughs> pretty well covers that. Yeah, there was one other aspect that kind of popped up a little bit in these episodes which is kink and BDSM. Oh, yeah. Which is also a thing that sex workers do. 
especially at the beginning of the DS9 episode, like right in the opening scene, Dax is walking up and she's kind of moving a little wonky, slow, stiff, whatever. Um, And we find out that she has been in the med bay quite frequently in the last few weeks because she's having crazy Klingon sex with her Klingon boyfriend. <laughs> and uh, you got to believe that there's like a lot of kinkiness like going on. So I'm like, Bo- uh, both DS of them play. have both of them have sustained numerous injuries. Uh, both of them. OK, well, good. Uh, they, 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 they're like the only other person who's been in the infirmary as much almost as much as you has been Worf. <laughs> <laughs> so we don't know what they're doing specifically, but it's at least rough, whatever it is. Yes. Um, and it just makes me happy as a kickster who's like a masochist. I'm like, yeah, you can enjoy sex that like kind of leaves you like st- st- sore in the morning or whatever. And I don't advocate for like doing something that will actually injure you. Yeah, you shouldn't need to go to the infirmary. But it does happen. What I do advocate for is being very aware of your body and its limitations and being in like communicating that very explicitly with your partner to be like, these are the things that might endanger my physical health. Let's play very far around them. Mm-hmm. So there's some free advice for you. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> and there's also some overtones in the um, in the interactions between Picard and Vosh. Uh, Vosh, who they like, they kind of talk about discipline at a couple points in time. And I'm going to put some clips in here. Somehow I doubt you'd find life aboard a starship suitable to your taste. Probably not. I could never tolerate all that discipline. Uh-huh. <laughs> and what about me? You remain here. It's safer. Is that an order? Absolutely. This isn't a starship, Jean-Luc. I don't follow orders. Oh, I see. Besides, you'd never find it without me. The professor's notes are in code. From the moment I met you, I knew you were going to be trouble. You look like a man who could handle trouble. She's like such a brat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> It's it's interesting because she's both she both seems like her interest is piqued by this discipline acts like, mm-hmm. but she's also giving him a hard time about it. Yes, I don't identify as a brat myself, but I know a number of people who do, and what they like that tension of being like, no, I won't do this thing that you want me to do, even though it's the thing that I also want to do. <laughs> Um, and, uh, maybe it's just because I'm extra horny thanks to quarantine, but I was like really into those exchanges. Yeah. I think it's also for me, at least the wharf and, um, the wharf and Dax scene is informed by like, oh, I can't remember what episode it, it is, but there's, there's a different episode where Worf celebrates his day of ascension and like goes onto the holodeck and has a whole row of like Klingon men like um, beat him and electrocute him with sticks is like part yes, of this. The pain sticks. The pain sticks. 
<laughs> so it's just like pain and, and and pleasure and duty and honor are all kind of like bound up in in Klingon culture and sexuality. Um, and there are mm-hmm. other times that they allude to this, but like. Uh, oh yeah, having that context from T and G and bringing that to that conversation, I'm like something is going on in the bedroom that's not vanilla. Hell yeah, I mean that's like yeah, there's a lot of talk about Klingon like mating or whatever being initiated by biting and just kind of <laughs> like going right. from there. And so I'm <laughs> I into it. About the biting, <laughs> my God. <laughs> oh. <sighs> Okay, I think, I we've, think that we have covered everything. We've thoroughly covered Risa. Yes. Hopefully we'll see more Risa in the future. I hope yes. you guys enjoy this episode. Let us know if there's other topics you want us to cover. Um, and we'll see you next month. Or we'll hear you next month. You'll hear us next month. You'll hear it. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Got it. Nailed it. Live long and prosper. Peace and long life. <laughs> Bye. Intertractional is a production of Federation and Fempire, written and produced by Ryan Ascalese and Becca Motola Barnes. Original music by Danny Kavka. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Intertractional. We want to hear from you. Join our Facebook group to discuss this episode with us and other fans. Email us at intertractional at gmail.com. You can even send us a voice memo. Visit our website at intertractional.com for show notes, images, and citations. Intertractional is available on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts. If you like this podcast, you can help others find it by taking a moment to rate and review us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. It really, really helps. You can donate to us at paypal.me slash federation and fempire or you can become a member of our member feed on podfan that is pod.fan slash intertractional oh yes number one about that hogon you requested yes sir you and i need to have a little chat about that was it a relaxing trip captain Uh uh-huh I knew he'd have a great time.